what I think is actually most important is having the passion bar. You cannot just work on an idea because it's a good idea or because you think you would be a good fit for it or because you just in your heart desperately really want to be an entrepreneur because you think that's what's going to make you fulfilled. You have to actually meet the bar of, am I going to be passionate enough that when this gets really hard, I'm going to keep doing it? And that's like one of multiple bars that you have to meet to build a company. You have to have that bar. You also have to have the bar of it being a big enough vision for it to become a company. You also have to have the bar of it being possible to build. There are multiple bars, but the passion bar is one that I, I think is really important to hold for things that you do. Because uh, when you commit to starting a company and you start hiring employees pretty soon, you know, or raise investment or any of these things, pretty soon you're on a multi-year journey and that short-term passion is going to get dissipated and you're going to need long-term fire in your belly passion. Hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show. My guest today is Gagan Biani. Gagan is a friend of mine who has done a lot of entrepreneur stuff. Um, go way back to starting co-founding Udemy, which you are likely familiar with if you have paid any attention in the last decade to the online learning space. Udemy is where tens of millions of users uh, have gone to learn classes uh, from coding to Photoshop. Uh, that company was started very similarly or in, in a similar time frame to Creative Live back in the 2009-10 world. Udemy went on to be uh, become, you know, hit unicorn status and was taken public. Um, in addition to co-founding Udemy, Goggin has started two other startups, one in the learning space, which he's working on right now, called Maven, which is a Andreessen-backed company where he is the CEO. And there was a stint in the middle there where we actually got to be uh, become friends around a company that he started called Sprig, which is an online food delivery. This is way in advance of the pandemic, so you can see he was really on to something. But today's conversation is fascinating on a couple different axes. One of what it takes to actually decide whether or not you have a good idea. And then if your idea is a good idea, how you should finance it. Should you bootstrap it or should you seek investors? This is one of the most popular questions I get around uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and Goggin does an exceptional job of addressing it. We also talk about big failures and why starting companies and being an entrepreneur is a hard life. He talked about over 15 years as an entrepreneur, he's really only made any money three of those years. It just so happened that he made a lot of money in those three years. But these are things that are not commonly talked about, including what a venture capitalism business model looks like and are you a good fit for it? These are things that are out there in the world. And if you know who to talk to, you get the right answer. But my goal today with having Goggin on the show was to learn from someone like him who has had successes, failures, and is still you know, relentlessly pursuing his next vision, his next dream. So th this episode is chock full of great ideas. If you want to start something, if you are a, an entrepreneur or you're a creator who's looking to either participate with some friends in starting a new thing to join a company that's maybe growing, I'm going to get out of your way and let you enjoy today's conversation. Yours truly and Goggin Biani. Goggin, welcome to the show. It's your uh, it's, it's your day to be in the spotlight. We're so happy to have you here on the show. Uh, we have a, um, I would say, an interesting past as co-conspirators in the in the online learning space, as 
uh, entrepreneurs who had some, we, we shared some investors across our last projects. Uh, I've been watching your work from afar for some time. You got a bunch of cool stuff going right now. I'm very excited for you to um, share your world with our audience today. Thanks, Chase. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. We've definitely crossed paths so many different ways and really appreciate you having me on the show. Awesome. Well, one of the ways that I like to start, I've got a sort of a couple ways into the show. And my favorite is to ask the guest how how they describe themselves and their own work to the audience. So uh, that, that if there are some people who might, might not be familiar with your work, that they can sort of rock where you're coming from. So let's start there. Maybe you can share a little bit about yourself and the work you do in the world. And, and that'll be our, our kickoff. The dreaded self bio. I, I, <laughs> I love being put on the spot. Um, so I, I consider myself an entrepreneur, uh, for, for my work. I was very lucky that when I was about 21, so right out of college, um, I, discovered that this was a possible career path. Until that date, I literally had no idea you could be an entrepreneur. And and uh, despite growing up in Silicon Valley, ironically. And so when I figured out it could be a career path, I started to explore it. And I ended up starting uh, Udemy. I, I met the people who had the idea for Udemy, Aaron and Octai, my co-founders, and decided to work on it with them. I've also at times dabbled in journalism. I did write for TechCrunch. I ran a conference business. Um, I worked as a, a leader, a marketing like advisor leader at Lyft. Um, I started a food delivery company. That was my second startup. Um, and now I'm co-founder CEO at Maven, which is a online learning company focused on live cohort-based courses. So kind of similar to Creative Live in a lot of ways, but focus on multi-session um, courses where you might meet your, your, your fellow learners over three to five to 10 sort of uh, sessions in a row. And then, um, you know, learn a subject like maybe conversational AI products or chat GPT for finance or product management. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is a good table setting. Um, now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to say how I know you specifically. Um, if I and if I botch this, you you jump in and correct me because I'm uh, known to get some of the details wrong on these. Uh, but my awareness of you is, of course, through Udemy, Creative Live, and Udemy were amongst the earliest learning um, platforms out there. They had different. You know, ours were, um, Udemy was more of a platform where people would come on and teach classes and you enable a lot of other people to, to teach, uh, and creative live was a little bit more, we handpicked people and made specific things. We had a live component at that point. You didn't. So I was aware of Udemy in the ecosystem and you specifically as one of the co-founders, uh, but the rubber really met the road when you were already on to your second company, which was Sprig, the one that you mentioned, the food delivery company. And uh, an investor that was on my board was interested in investing in you and, and said, oh, I think he passed my name on to you as a reference. And we talked and I remember that I really like that guy. He's sharp and interested and he's asking the right questions about investors. And I think he's going to go do some awesome things with Sprig too. And what I what I see now in Maven to touch on each of the sort of the 
cornerstones that you mentioned, Udemy, um, Sprig, and now Maven. I think it's fascinating. And this is one of the areas I actually want to sort of back into your career. I want to start where you are now working on Maven because I think the, the people who are listening and watching, they wouldn't be here if they didn't seek to learn from all these, you know, various media sources and the experts in the world who now we have access to in a way that we, we didn't a decade ago. Um, and given that I think Maven is really interesting, I'm curious if you could sort of make a case for why cohort-based is the thing that you all are over-indexing on at Maven. Why do you believe deeply in that? And, um, you know, what's the sort of the, what's the pitch for someone who's curious? Yeah, so Maven's, Maven's vision is to be the university of the future. And our idea is that if we can bring the world's experts, like people like you, obviously experts in product management, design, engineering, and ideally even things like parenting eventually, right? Uh, live online to teach uh, other people, that'll be a, a huge opportunity for us in education. But I think the main thing that's unique about Maven, as you said, is cohort base. So what makes cohort base interesting? Well, first and foremost, um, accountability. It's very surprising, but as you and I both know, video-based courses have like a four to 10% completion rate. And while I think that that can be overstated as a negative, it's not as bad as it sounds, it still is a sort of damning statistic. And what it means is that people often have an intent to learn something, but learning is really hard. It forces you to look in the mirror. It forces you to get through a lot of rough patches where you don't know how to solve a problem, you're doing something new. And the accountability of a cohort dramatically improves that experience. And so if you think about the human element of learning, just the reality of like, you aren't just going through a textbook like a robot would, you're going through a textbook like a human would, which means that you get stuck, you stop, you have questions, you need to see other people do it to believe you can do it. Uh, a cohort provides that. And so accountability is probably the number one benefit. Um, the second benefit is that it allows you to get uh, your questions answered and unstuck. And it allows you to be more doing focused. Uh, cohorts by nature force you to produce materials because you have to share them with other people in the cohort. It forces you to speak up because you might get split off into a breakout room where you have to speak with other people. And so, there's an interactive component in a cohort-based course that doesn't exist in a video-based course. Mm. And those are really the reasons why I think it's just a much more effective learner experience. Interesting. When I think back to Creative Live's early days, uh, it was largely, you know, the business model was from the outside, at least it was, oh, cool. They're broadcasting these classes for free on a schedule and I can watch and participate in those for free if I'm doing that when the, when they are airing. And yet if I want to have access to that course in the future, or if I want to watch some of the videos or do some of that work on my own time, then I have to own it. So as you know, what I learned with that process is that's a compelling mechanism to get people to buy. It's generous because, you know, at, at the outset, it's free and yet, and there is a cohort con component to it because everyone's in this live 
class together. And we were, in fact, taking questions from all over the world. And, and so it had many of the attributes that you're talking about. But specifically, it's different. And I'm wondering if this idea of meeting regularly at some sort of interval do you feel like that weeds out a bunch of people who are maybe not serious or who, um, for whom, you know, this sounds too, too scary. And, and it's that weeding process that creates a better environment and a better result, a better, you know, aligns a bunch of interested learners or what specifically about scheduling it out. Do you feel like, you know, is the, is, is super helpful. And I'm asking this specifically because I think our listeners are curious about, the, the value of this in a world where they can watch any video at any time they want. This is, this breaks that paradigm as an entrepreneur. I'm interested in it, but I'm dying to hear from you. Like wh what does that make a more dynamic, you know, are you selecting or what's the, what's the, um, is there some additional or hidden benefits there? Well, one of the most important things is that there is a curriculum and it's kind of on it's, it's unexpected benefit, but it's very difficult to learn um, everything you need to learn in just one session. It requires learning something, then going and maybe practicing it or digesting it and then coming back. So one of the benefits of a cohort is, and multiple sessions, is actually an individual benefit. It's not about the group yet. I'll talk about that in a second. But it's just that, hey, if you want to learn you know, how to manage your product management career, the best thing you can do is dedicate multiple sessions to it and sort of say, and, and go through the multiple steps. Like maybe there's five, you know, different lectures here that you need to go through and that, that's important. So that's one benefit of a cohort versus like episodic live, live content. Uh, the second benefit is this um, project-based sort of interactive approach you interact with your peers more and you build a relationship if you see them multiple times and if you see the instructor multiple times the same instructor multiple times and so whereas with a again an episodic situation uh like creative live you might have a relationship with creative live and you certainly are going to have a relationship with you chase you may not have a relationship with the instructor who's teaching that course because you may not actually go to every one of their their events in a row and it's not part of what you're buying um, per mm. se. Whereas mm. at Maven, you're always buying a multi-session relationship with this instructor that you can go deep with. And then finally, it is about um, the, the multi-session approach has as much to do with what happens in between the sessions. So it's very much a part of the experience to do a project or to, to sort of you know, have a discussion offline in an offline community with the same group over the two to four week period during which you're taking one of these courses. Mm. And so it's an odd thing, right? Psychology is odd because at the end of the day, we don't always understand. It's not always logical why people react a certain way. And so I'm giving you a multiple factor answer. There's multiple things that go into it, but the cohesive answer is actually the best. The cohesive answer is psychologically people aren't thinking, oh, I'm going to take a cohort-based course or I'm going to take a live co course on Creative Live or I'm going to take a video-based course on Udemy. What they're thinking is, oh, in two weeks, I'm going to learn from Shreyas Doshi on how to improve my career. I get it. All right, moving on. You know, And in yeah. that soundbite version, I think a cohort-based course is the most powerful because it just makes sense to people. It's what they're used to. It's how they learned in college, how they learned in school. Mm. Okay. 
Let's put a pin in Maven specifically now, and let's go back. Let's go back to um, just learning. I think we we share that in common, our fascination with it. The fact that you were a co-founder of Udemy, which, you know, went on through all, lots of different in, incarnations, um, you know, frankly speaking, a, a number of different CEOs, a bunch of different growth and growth rounds. And, you know, and then ultimately um, went public, did it not? Uh, yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately it went public and I think we can all call that uh, a success. So again, putting a pin in Maven, let's go back to your early interest in Udemy and or in learning generally, like why learning, why were you fascinated with that? And and then specifically, let's talk about that process of you know being the co-founder of a company that ultimately went public. Sure, you want me to start with why learning? Yeah, I want. It's, yeah, you know, you said you met you met your your co-founders that they were sort of starting to work on something, and you got involved. What was it like? Why why learning of all the things that you could be an entrepreneur in? You know, you cited a handful of different ones that you'd start a different you know areas of interest early on, but why learning to to do your first sort of major um, yeah. entrepreneurial adventure? Well, I. I think that it's two two things that created this sort of energy in me. One is that growing up, I loved learning, uh, and I always learned. Uh, I always loved learning new things. My head was in a book for most of my youth. I was an avid chess player, soccer player, baseball, you know, American football, um, just all sorts of different uh, activities. I, I took piano. I took guitar. Like whatever, everything, always learning both inside and outside of school. I was a very good student for most of my, my, my life. And then puberty hit and I became a teenager and junior high and high school hit. And I started to realize that the emperors had no clothes, meaning that the teachers who were in charge of teaching me were not as effective as I thought I, I, I had sort of idolized teachers growing up. And I think I just sort of started to get really frustrated with my education and, there were a bunch of things. I went to a public high school that I think there was kind of a, a pseudo, you know, struggle between the immigrant kids who are really high performing and the more, um, quote unquote, native, not native as a Native American, but like, you know, white American or, or whatever, um, teachers who had grown up in a totally different society that did not care nearly as much as we did about SATs and getting into college and that kind of thing. And there was just this battle at school between these two groups. And I was at the forefront of this. I was in the principal's office over this battle. I was like, you know, writing articles and getting kicked off the school newspaper. And so I basically just like started to get really upset at the system while still having this core passion for learning. And those two things collided in what has become a sort of lifelong journey for me, not just of, of learning, but also of teaching and, and building better learning experiences for the public and sort of trying to disrupt the existing system. So I think that's really why I want to change the system and why I want to build the next version of it. Yeah, the, you know, the, the classic adage is scratch, scratch your own itch, right? If it's not a passion or if it's not a, a problem that's near to you, then you're not going to be as good at either solving that problem or applying effort when shit gets hard. And we all know, I guess at least you and I know it as entrepreneurs, that it does get hard. There's all kinds of places in, in a startup's journey that are very, very difficult. Um, 
Well, let's, let's follow on that journey. So you, you were passionate about learning. You saw the system was failing some folks and specifically you that you weren't getting, um, you either getting treated differently or you had a different set of goals and values. The, the, the teachers, the emperors as they were, had no clothes. And so when describe the story of how you actually went on board at Udemy, because the idea of, you know, building anything and you know, that has, is used by tens of millions of people is, you know, especially looking backwards, like, wow, I noodled on this thing in a closet with a bunch of my friends for a while and there's 10 million people or whatever, 50 or hundred million people started using it. That's an interesting journey. So describe your sort of onboarding. Uh, so people might get a sense of what it's like to, to go on that ride. First of all, again, identifying your passion and then sort of pursuing that passion such that you took action and joined a startup and, you know, again, ultimately took that company public. Sure. It started when the recession happened in 2008. I was graduating college and I joined Accenture as my first job. I had already luckily secured the job before the recession started. But as I got closer to my start date and as I started working there, I realized that the company was really going through a pretty severe, you know, severe challenges because their business had dried up in the in the downturn. And so I started to worry that maybe I was going to be out of a job soon. Uh, turned out to be a false concern. They kept all of us first year associates, but that got me on the path of trying to find an alternative career path. And I eventually found TechCrunch and started to read voraciously about startups. And pretty soon I was like having all these startup ideas and I wanted to get into it. I started meeting people and one fateful week in May, um, I ended up applying to TechCrunch to become a, an intern. And I applied to the Founder Institute to start a company through this startup incubator called the Founder Institute. And I got into both uh, and keep in mind, like I, I often uh, was, I, I definitely did not expect to get into either of them. This was a very surprise, very significant surprise to me. And I, so I, I ended up deciding to do both that summer while I had my full-time job at Accenture. So it was a pretty wild time. And during the Founder Institute, I started as many entrepreneurs do with the idea of starting a test prep business. So, you know, I knew how to hack the, the tests. I thought we could use the internet to teach test prep to kids. Um, and that kind of went nowhere. I, I just couldn't find the right angle and didn't have the right partners. And so I was about to get kicked out of the incubator when the founder of the incubator gave me a call and was like, dude, Goggin, I'm going to kick you out if you don't go and meet these guys, um, Aaron and Octai. They're really smart. They've got a cool idea, but they need a, a business co-founder like you. And so Adeo Resi, um, who's the founder of the Founder Institute, basically forced me to meet with them. And I got on Skype and met with Aaron and Octai, and they demoed their product, which at that time, by the way, was a live learning platform. It was Zoom. It was, it was basically a replacement for Zoom or, or an early version of Zoom. And they built this beautiful live learning platform with a whiteboard and presentation sharing and everything else. And I was enamored by their technical capability because at that point I had never met someone or really spent time with someone who could build that kind of sophisticated piece of software before. And so 
I decided to join them. Um, and for a while, my job was basically to be the like American passport salesman of Udemy. I would sell to investors. I would sell to um, instructors and try to get people and to students and try to get people to start adopting this, this uh, product that we had built. And for six months, actually, I think it was almost a year, I couldn't get anyone to really adopt it. And we uh, finally, maybe maybe nine months in, we finally decided, all right, screw it. This live video thing isn't going to work. And I was pushing for this idea of doing recorded videos because while I couldn't get people to do live videos, I had found all these like libraries on the internet of like, these really janky sites. I mean, you have to imagine this is like sites that look like Craigslist, okay? That just had large, large libraries of videos. They'd come out of universities. They'd come out of, you know, random people on the internet who just decided that they were going to put up learning videos online. And these were, this was before YouTube was even that big. I mean, YouTube was getting big, but still a lot of these videos were not on YouTube. They were just on web websites. And slowly over time, I, I convinced my co-founders, look, we need to ditch this live learning platform. We got to do recorded courses. And we launched the site via recorded content and it started to do get some traction. Um, and then slowly over time, you know, another six months went by and it got some traction, but we couldn't get anyone to actually buy anything on the site. They were just watching the free content. Um, and then we discovered coding courses. And when we finally discovered coding courses, that was the real unlock for Udemy. That was the day that like, oh my God, I remember this intern being at our office. It was his first week and he was like, I'm going to go start a course because <laughs> he saw how much money this instructor made off of a one day, you know, coding, coding course. And, um, and then we were kind of off to the races and, and coding really was what made Udemy successful, um, was finding that that niche that people really wanted to learn coding and this new format was a great way to do it. Fascinating. All right. So of the, you know, you, you highlighted a handful of, um, twists and turns in that, in that share right there. And if I'm you know put myself in the listener's shoes, there's a, you have done it. You have, uh, started something, collaborated with others. What's missing from that story for me is that I'm curious about, and I think our uh, listeners are curious about is like, okay, you had an idea, you built a prototype, or you had some co-founders that could actually build things. And yet then how did you scale? You found a thing that was working presumably in a small, you know, in a small ish ecosystem. You said you got a coding class, but that doesn't really help people understand how you scaled an idea. And to be fair, you've now done this a couple of times, right? You built and scaled Udemy, you built and scaled Sprig, which was your food delivery service. And now you're doing the same with Maven. So clearly you identify, like you have a skill of identifying this is worth scaling. And then you've gone out and you've raised money against that idea once you've sort of seen you know, the tea leaves or whatever, I'm hoping you can dive in and, and what are some of these signs that are in the tea leaves and how did you go about basically raising money? Because there's a bunch of people listening right now, like, I've got a great idea. I don't know how to 
you know, either get to a prototype or what's, what's the Goggin playbook? Cause you've done it three times. <laughs> sure. I think that it starts with having a vision. And this is the part that I, I, I think most people actually miss is that you can't raise money and you can't build a successful company unless there's a destination that you're trying to get to that could be a big company. And most people, when I hear their ideas, their business doesn't have even the potential to make 100 million or 500 million in revenue, which is what it takes to build a company that's worth over a couple billion dollars, which is what it takes for a venture capitalist to want to invest. So it's perfectly fine to start a business that doesn't raise venture capital that wants that is has a, a different potential. I mean, I've started a conference business. It was a great conference. It made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and was a really satisfactory part of my career. But that business wasn't intended to have this big vision. It was just, hey, I'm going to do something now and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be valuable for people and I'm going to do it a couple of times and we'll see what happens. With Udemy, we always had the vision that it was going to be a big marketplace. I mean, we, uh, we envisioned that it was going to be like YouTube or eBay um, or Odesk. Those were companies at the time that we could look at. And Odesk is now called Upwork. Uh, and so we always had this idea that, and so every step that we were taking along the way involved us either adapting the vision to it. So saying, oh, our old vision is actually not going to work. Our old vision was a bunch of live courses on this site. That's not going to work. We're going to do recorded courses. So that's an adaption, uh, adaptation of the vision. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, does that vision still have the potential if it was a really big company to be hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue? And the answer was yes, but it, the answer could very well be no. The second option is not adapting the vision, but adapting the plan so that it still is along the path towards the vision, right? You know, imagine you and I are going on a walk, right, Chase? And if you ever visited me, you'd know this would be a very common thing I'd recommend us do. Like, especially if we had half a day together, I'd be like, Chase, why don't we just go go for a walk? And 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 I have an idea in my head of where that walk might end up. I kind of have a route, you know. I'm in, I'm in, let's say we're in San Francisco and we start in downtown. I know that eventually I want to end in Golden Gate Park because it'd be really fun to see the sunset, right? But there's so many different ways we could get to Golden Gate Park. We're not going to walk in a straight line, right? You'd, you'd walk through some really rough neighborhoods. You wouldn't really enjoy it. It'd be, it'd be boring. And also it wouldn't be practical. It wouldn't be the point of the day. So what, but you still have to get to Golden Gate Park at the end. And I think one of the things that we did well at Udemy was when we realized that coding courses were going to be big, we didn't say, okay, now we're just going to rebrand the entire site, make it all about coding, and we're going to sell the public on coding courses and ignore the rest of the vision. We fit the coding courses into the vision. So those courses were clearly part of a marketplace where you could still learn business fundamentals. You could still get a you know, 48-hour MBA. You could still take courses on uh, Photoshop, right? Courses that were not coding. So because we still held the vision in the future in our heads and then adapted our own execution towards that vision, we had a much higher likelihood of achieving it. And, you know, funny enough, like our vision came true. Like most of what Udemy is today is especially on the consumer side is basically exactly what we were talking about 15 years ago when we started the company 
Um, and so I think that was a critical part was having that destination um, and doing whatever it took, but in service to both getting to the next step while also making sure that that next step was going to get us to the eventual goal. Let's introduce the concept now of getting other people to get excited about that destination, because this is another thing that you've done. So if you've created a vision three times and, and mapped out where we want to go and we're not quite sure how to get there, we know it's not going to be linear and by nonlinear, I mean, two steps forward, one step back. I mean, we're going to, you know, raise money. We're going to run some experiments. We're going to realize those experiments don't work. Then we're going to have to take a flat round or a down round. We're going to have to, you know, lay off some people and change directions. Or if you're Golden Gate, you know, bridge destination, we're going to realize that we walked two or three blocks out of our way. We're going to have to backtrack a little bit, or there was some road work, some construction. We had to take a left where we thought we could take a right. So it's, it's a nonlinear path. But how specifically do you think, okay, great, now my goal is to get other people excited about it, specifically people who can help us scale this vision, assuming people can meet the vision criteria that you just laid out? Yeah. Uh, and by other people, you mean investors or employees? Yeah, yeah, both. Because, you know, that's if the goal is to build something and you're building in service of a vision. Ultimately, you're going to have to get other people excited about it. And the other yeah. people, even if we just took you on face value there, other employees uh, or future you know, co-conspirators and you know, venture, venture capitalists or some other investor. It doesn't necessarily have to be Silicon Valley or venture capital. It could be you know, getting friends and family to invest in, your, you know, in your, the pizza joint that you want to make or whatever. But yeah. getting, people, getting people excited is, you know, is required otherwise no one's going to write you a check or sign on the dotted line to come work at a company if they don't you know ha believe in what it is that you want to build so how do you do that that's the thing i think it stops so many people i've got a great idea i believe deeply in it but fuck i'm stuck i don't know where to go how do i get other people excited about it besides my mom and my you know my life partner's spouse or whatever how, how do i you know attract event uh, investors because it is a billion dollar idea and I don't even know where to start. Yeah, it's a great question. And I will say that there's some uh, challenge here in explaining this because I didn't learn this. I naturally already was that was fairly good at the sales part of the business. And so what you're talking about fundamentally is sales and it's selling the vision. Um, and because I'm, I'm more, I didn't learn it on the job, but I already knew kind of how to do it. It's a little harder to teach, but I'm going to do my best. So it starts by having a big vision. And I just want to reiterate that. I think a lot of people think they have a big vision and they don't, or they have a vision that's attractive to certain types of people, but not others. And you have to find the people who it is. So let's say you've done that. The next step is painting that picture and making it come to life. And there are a couple of key components of this. One is showing people what the future could look like if your business or your idea comes to fruition, right? So that could be anything from, in the case of Udemy, it was like, imagine a world where you could just go online and if you had a need, like you needed to learn X, you needed to learn Photoshop to get a new job, you needed to learn design in order to, you know, up-level your, your skills in in design, let's say you wanted to learn how to write a PRD, um, which is a product requirements document in product, uh, you could just go on this website, search for it, and you'd be able to pay 10, 50, $100. And you'd be able to get a course that would teach you that subject. Like, 
that was us sharing. We shared that vision with so many people. And most people thought we were a little crazy, didn't think it was possible. But every once in a while, you meet someone who's crazy enough to believe you. And, you know, and so that vision was sold heavily and clearly along the way. But then we also had to uh, meet a couple other hurdles. Another hurdle is what are the trends that show that this direction is actually possible? So what is happening today? What is the emergent behavior that will potentially show that this could be possible in the future? And so there were already a bunch of video-based learning sites that were starting to make, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars that we could point to and say, well, it's kind of like this, like there's a small group of people on the internet who are already spending money on these types of courses. Here's an example. The example at that time was Linda. Um, Linda.com, uh, L-Y-N-D-A, now, now known as, Link, now bought, you know, got bought by LinkedIn. So it's LinkedIn Learning. Um, Linda was uh, one of multiple companies that were good examples for us that we could use that showed this emergent behavior. Another example of emergent behavior was all these websites that were starting to pop up that I mentioned earlier in this episode about, you know, essentially these link link websites that would just have long links to videos of, of course content that was on the internet. So we had emergent behavior. We also used YouTube to prove emergent behavior, right? YouTube proved that people were willing to sit on their computer and just watch videos, which by the way, until that point in 2009, when we were starting was not that obvious. Um, we also had to prove that online education was going to be a big thing. And so YouTube kind of helped prove that, but that was a big challenge. So we had to show the emergent behavior. And then the final thing is we had to show that there was practical traction towards the next steps. Like you can't just go and sell people on an idea. I mean, some people do this. I think in the movie business, to some extent, they do this. They, they might actually just sell people on the idea of the movie and they don't actually have that much traction, but usually they have something. They're looking for their first actor who's signed on. They're looking for their, they've got a screenplay that they can show. They've got, they made some progress. In the, in the business world, you have to make progress to prove anything to people because people are not just asking the question of, is this possible? They're asking the question, is Goggin going to do it? Is Chase going to do it? Or, or should I go and talk to someone else about doing this idea? Maybe it's a great idea, but maybe Goggin doesn't have the stuff to make it happen. So Goggin's got to prove that he can do it. Aaron, my co-founder, had to prove it. And so we had to have a prototype. We had to have users, traction, people paying us money. And at each one of those hurdles, it was easier and easier to get people on board, right? So in the beginning, the number of people who are going to end up getting on board with you is going to be a low, low percentage hit rate of all the people you're going to talk to because you have very little proof. Um, and then you get thousands of users or tens of thousands of users. And now your hit rate goes from 2% of people believing you to 5%. And then you get, you know, instead of raising a million dollars of venture capital, you can raise $5 million. And so you have to build this like momentum slowly and slowly over time. and show that what you said in the beginning is actually slowly becoming reality. You have to prove that this is possible. Um, and so I think that it's it's a much more of a process than it is just a one-time thing. You're always selling as an entrepreneur. I'm selling on this podcast. I'm trying to convince you, Chase, who's a total skeptic, uh, probably I would assume, of, of cohort-based courses, of new models of education, because you've seen so many companies do it. And I'm here like telling you why. And, and you know, we've got proof now. We've, you know, we've done millions of dollars of course sales. We've got 
thousands, tens of thousands of learners, but even that is not going to be as strong as if I come back five years from now and I'm like, Chase, I've actually got 2 million learners now. Um, and, you know, Nike and, and uh, Procter and & Gamble and like, um, you know, Walmart are all sending their employees through this program. So each one of those proof points will make it more and more credible and will get us further along the journey, which will allow me to sell more people. And it sort of feeds itself. One of the things that I loved that you said was getting, there's this a building of proof that takes time. And I do think that a lot of, you know, people who would be listening or watching right now mistake the fact of getting one person excited at one point in time to it's basically a lifetime of getting people excited about the things you're building, <laughs> whether those are inv investors, you know, future employees or partners or, or end users. And uh, to me, that's a, um, the reason that is not talked about is because it sounds daunting unless, and this is my point is if you actually are living this stuff in your soul, this is the part where, you know, this idea of, Oh, do you want to work on something you're passionate about? And people say, no, that's stupid. If you work on something you're passionate about, you're going to be, you know, sharpening pencils till the day you die, or you're going to just like, there's this all kinds of ephemery about like passion. And by contrast, I think if you are not actually working on something that you give a lot of shits about, I can smell it. If you're talking to me about statistics prior to getting excited about what the end user can do in three, five, 10 years from now, or in, in four or five iterations of this business, I can smell it. It's just, it's palpable. And this is why in sort of the enthusiasm is required for entrepreneurs. I do not know an entrepreneur who's not enthusiastic about like truly genuinely in their soul about creating a thing that is not just a business idea. It is not just look good on paper. Therefore, I'm going to go build it and try and be the first. I do not know those people. Those people I don't think exist. And I don't think if they do, they've been successful at one time. That is not success that's repeatable. I think that's the anomaly rather than the pattern. Question for you is how do you how do you um, decide what it is you're going to work on? Like, is it, is it passion? Is it curiosity? Is it you find yourself staying up at night? Um, or you can obviously you can throw rocks at my theory that it's not just a good business idea that that doesn't get a founder from, you know, point A to point Z. No, I agree. I think you have to have passion for it. I think there are people for what it's worth who have passion for money and business and not necessarily passion for the specific idea. I mean, I bet there are people who find it really hard to get excited about HR software. So if you're building HR software, you might be more excited by the visceral challenge of just running a company. And that, that like, so there might be some more, you and I built consumer businesses, so it's very easy to get passionate about them. And, you know, you're, you're just, you and I both naturally lead with art and, and soul and a heart a little bit. So I, I do think there are people who are a little different, a little bit more mechanical about it. And I think that's totally fine. Um, but there's still, there's still passion there. It's just a different type of passion. So I think no matter what that's critical. And for me, um, I, what I think is actually most important is having the passion bar. You cannot just work on an idea because it's a good idea or because you think you would be a good fit for it or because you just in your heart desperately really want to be an entrepreneur because you think that's what's going to make you fulfilled. 
you have to actually meet the bar of, am I going to be passionate enough that when this gets really hard, I'm going to keep doing it. And that's like one of multiple bars that you have to meet to build a company. You have to have that bar. You also have to have the bar of it being a big enough vision for it to become a company. You also have to have the bar of it being possible to build. There are multiple bars, but the passion bar is one that I, I think is really important to hold for things that you do. Because uh, when you commit to starting a company and you start hiring employees pretty soon, you know, or raise investment or any of these things, pretty soon you're on a multi-year journey and that short-term passion is going to get is going to get um, dissipated, uh, and you're going to need long-term fire in your belly passion. All right. So, in that little tidbit, you you talked about it getting hard. I want to get crystal for a second. So, give us an example of when it got hard at Udemy. Because I, again, looking from the outside, you have an idea, you start it, you grow. And to be fair, with all these things, there's all kinds of market, uh, you know, unit economics and market economics and and trends. And um, both you with you to me and me with Creative Live, we were largely either riding or co-creating a universe, an ecosystem where the future of learning was going to be taught online from from experts. So, however you think about it shit got hard, right? We cared a lot. We were in, you know, in and up to our, our necks and shit got hard. And so I'm looking for when did it get hard or when was it the hardest for you in particular at Udemy and what did you do to push through it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible to understate how hard it actually gets, I think. Um, and yet it's also possible to have enough perspective to realize it's really never that bad. It just feels really, really bad in the moment. But, oh, when we started Udemy, you have to understand we were, it was 2009, like venture capital wasn't, wasn't flowing like it is today. And we had really ragtag backgrounds. My co-founders were immigrants from Turkey who went to a top tier university in Turkey that today actually has some respect amongst wise venture capitalists. But at that time, you know, venture capitalists basically just looked at Stanford or bust. Like if you didn't go to Stanford, or MIT, you just kind of weren't that interesting. And, um, and, you know, we were doing education, which no one wanted to do. So the first year and a half of Udemy was just brutal. It was like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, hard every once in a while. It was like hard every day. And then once in a while, like once every six months, we'd get some breakthrough that would just be when we were about to give up. And so the first six months were, I was, we couldn't afford uh, giving up our full-time jobs when we started Udemy. So the first six months was me trying to juggle a full-time job uh, that was in Washington, DC, when my co-founders were in San Francisco, flying back and forth. And so basically sleeping on red eyes and sleeping on, you know, the flight as much as possible while still having to be on call at my consulting job, working till two or 3 a.m. And then during the weekdays and then getting to Friday, Saturday and Sunday and trying to squeeze in another 30 to 40 hours of work there and then doing it all over again week after week after week and getting nowhere, by the way, raising no money, getting no one to teach on the course, uh, getting no one, you know, no additional users to use the platform. We hadn't even launched the thing at this point. And, um, and that was the first six months. And then finally we felt like, oh, maybe, you know, imagine doing that for six months, 
just getting your ass handed to you every day, having no credibility. So you had no confidence that this was actually going to work. And, and no one had done, and not no one, but very few people had started startups at that point that we had to draw upon. So there were people, plenty of people who had started them before us. And if they hadn't done it, I don't know if we would have had the confidence, but not that many people. And then at the end of it, we were like, shit, I can't take investor meetings on a Friday afternoon anymore when I, you know, I need to, you know, this investor wants to meet me and they're only giving me a time on Wednesday at 10. Well, at some point I had to quit my job and say, okay, well, we're going to take this leap of faith. And so this was six months in of getting my ass handed to me. And I still had to say, okay, well, now I've got enough traction to maybe quit my job. So maybe I could raise a financing round. And we went and did three weeks of fundraising. And we thought maybe in a, you know, three to six weeks, we'd get around together. And we had multiple investors say yes. And then it all fell apart. And so six weeks later, after quitting my job, after giving up everything, by the way, my parents didn't have money. So my mom and I really had to stretch to, to make things meet during this time. Um, and my co-founders didn't come for money either. So none of us sort of could, could really afford to take this risk, but we took it anyways. And, um, and then it failed. And so that's the first six months of Udemy was just that. And now I didn't have a job. I was full-time on this company, but had no salary and had no revenue and no, no, no users. Um, and when I say no users, I mean, literally zero users. Cause we had yet to still launch this product and my co-founders were working full-time and supporting me. And I moved into their house. They had an extra bedroom and, um, we all just sort of lived together and every day I'd wake up and I'd work on the dining room table because we couldn't afford desks or chairs or anything. We just used whatever they had. And then, you know, three months went by and we finally got the product launch and we got, we convinced a couple of people to write articles about it. And so we got TechCrunch and Mashable and other folks to write articles about it. And then we got tens of thousands of people to show up to the website in a couple of weeks. This was amazing high. And most of them disappeared. Um, you know, the story, Chase, like the big launch. And then most of them disappeared and like, a couple of weeks later, you're like, yeah, our actual user base out of all of that, I think we had 30,000 plus visitors come during that time. I think our actual user base was like 3,000 people a day. And we didn't really know. And I, were they real users? Or were they just people just randomly browsing and, and bouncing off the site? Like mostly that, right? But, and then we were like, okay, well, this is now it's been four months since I quit my job. And we're starting to get in debt. I mean, you know, we're, we're, I think $10,000 in debt. And we knew that at the speed that we were going, we'd probably be at 20 or $30,000 in debt in a couple of months. And it was like, okay, well, we've tried this now for 10 months or so. Um, if we can't raise money, like we're not going to be able to keep doing this. Like, and so I and my co-founders had a conversation and we said, okay, we're going to give it until August or September, I think. And if we don't raise money by September, Goggin's going to get another job and we're going to have to try to keep going with that. Or maybe we'll shut down the company. Um, and then we got lucky and it took about six to 12 weeks to get the fundraising thing back going. Most investors had already passed on us, so they didn't even want to meet with us again. They were just like, nah, not interesting. But a couple of investors said, okay, yeah, we'll take another meeting with you. and one of one or two of them invested on the spot and 
that completely changed everything. And all of a sudden we raised money and we raised around a million dollars. So woohoo, we could finally like go and build this company. But remember, we still had very few users and we still had no revenue. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had raised a million dollars, but like, you know, a million dollars only gets you so far. And now you have to go and we spent another six months trying to get traction. So at this point is a year and a half. And finally, that's when the coding courses started to hit. And that's really when we still struggled every month, but I'd say we finally had, I'd say half of the days were highs and half the days were lows instead of instead of it being like 90% lows and 10% highs. Um, and even throughout that journey, I would say after that, it still was a lot of lows, but like, I, I, I'll i just leave it at that. That's sort of the start of Udemy. So to uh, my friend Mark Cuban's uh, statement where getting an investor is actually a failure because you're you're having to sell 10 to 20% of your company to get to the next chapter, what would you respond? Cuban was sitting here with us. It's like, well, and, and this is ironically someone who invests a lot <laughs> and I know him as an investor first uh, and a human, I guess I know him as a human, but. I, like I think that he's more right than anyone in modern day give credit for. And I just, I almost always meet entrepreneurs and try to convince them don't raise venture capital, like go and just build this on your own and you can do it. And the challenges of raising venture capital are as hard as the challenges of bootstrapping it. But, you know, here I am, Chase, and I've started three companies that I have raised venture capital for. So I feel a little hypocritical saying that. Um, I think that there are certain ideas for which venture capital is the right way to go. And I think it would be very difficult to build Maven without raising money. Um, but I think that the vast majority of people's business ideas, they would be better off not raising venture capital. And it is a bit of a failure that they raise capital because what happens is they have a great idea and then they put it up to the standard of a venture capital fundraise and they might get the first fundraise, but their second and third fundraise is too high of a standard and they can't meet it. And then they have to shut the company down because they've sold 20 to 30% of their company. Um, and Instead, if they had they instead of running towards this wall of venture capital, if they had just slowly skipped towards or jogged towards this wall of profitability, I think they'd be much more likely to succeed. And I think your percentage chance of success goes down dramatically when you raise venture capital. Um, but your opportunity for success, your the total size of the business goes up. Does your financial outcome go up? I don't know. I think your financial outcome is actually better still if you're bootstrapped. So it, it has a lot to do with what types of things you're interested in. And I think most people are better off building a business rather than raising capital. I think this conversation here gets really interesting really quickly for, if not everybody listening, I would say 90, 90%, because there's 10% that know this this universe that we're talking about and they've raised money or they built a business or they have decided they've had an opportunity to take venture capital, for example, and decided not to because of what they saw when they explored it. So let's just assume we're talking to 90% of the people there. And if you're on the other end on your jogging trail or sitting in traffic or at your desk at work or wherever you listen to podcasts, we're talking to you. 
So I'm guessing that there is an interesting idea that you've been kicking around. And if you take Goggins advice, the, the way that I would paraphrase it is the prototype is worth a thousand words. You have to build something. You have to get other people excited. So let's say you've got some people excited beyond, you know, your mom and your co-founder, you, you're excited about, you know, when you bring this up at parties or at, you know, dinners with friends, that there is a universal or a near universal leaning in saying, wow, this is actually interesting. Or I can see the, go back to your earlier point, I can see the big vision. Where I think it gets fascinating is our culture's obsession with raising money as a sign of, of victory. I threw the Cuban quote in there to sort of disrupt that belief and to get us onto this thread. And here we are, you yourself, as someone who's raised three times, are saying it's probably best for you to bootstrap this business because it stays less complicated. You cited a couple of different reasons. So what's the litmus test for those who are new to this whole world on whether you should bootstrap or raise? If your business has um, a very high likelihood that if it works, it becomes a multi-billion dollar company, then that is a chance of raising. Otherwise, it's important to remember that you just simply are dead in the water right there. And multi-billion dollar company, like let's be practical about it and actually think about how would hundreds of millions of people use this product if it's free or tens of millions of people pay you $10 or you know millions of people pay you $100 or $1,000 like per year or per month kind of thing. And like, there are examples out there that you can use to understand that. So that's the first thing. The second hurdle is, um, would you be happy just being an entrepreneur and being controlling your own de 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 destiny? And if the answer is yes, if that's enough, and there's always an enough, by the way, like at, at Maven, there's an enough. And Maven has a very low likelihood of becoming a company like Google that defines the world, okay? I've already said that's enough. I'm not trying to become Google. I'm trying to become Airbnb or eBay or something that's maybe even smaller than that. Maybe maybe the best case scenario of, of, of Maven, if I'm being completely honest, is something like, you know, Masterclass or Udemy. Maybe. I think it can be a little bigger, but like, let's take that. You have to say enough at some point. If enough is $5 million, don't raise venture capital. $5 million of personal profit, don't raise venture capital. If enough is $2 million a year in profit, don't raise venture capital. Enough is, uh, and by the way, like I would go, if I if I went back, um, Udemy was just such a great idea that I think it was worth raising venture capital for. But if I went back to Sprig, man, I would be so much more happy right now if I had started a bootstrap company second built that up and then maybe thought about building a venture capital business after that. And maybe I wouldn't because if a bootstrap company, you'd own it forever and you'd just be able to keep running it. And with a venture capital company, like I don't know what my percentage exactly is of Maven. I don't know that I'm gonna share it either, but we're talking way less than 50%, right? Like I already am- We're like talking ownership percentage. Ownership percentage of the business. Right. I own way less than 50%. So. At this point, I am like a I'm I'm a hybrid between a hired gun who runs this company and an owner of the company. You know, we were just filling out banking paperwork, and no one owns enough to be a beneficial owner of Maven. That's crazy. 
Um, and so that's really important for people to understand is within two and a half years, the company has already sold, you know, in my case, you know, way more than 50% of the business to other people or given it away to co-founders or given it away to employees, et cetera. Now. Um, and so that's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big cost. It's a big, big cost. Um, yeah, this, and there's other, there's one other sort of, uh, page that I want to turn over and get clear on. And I will also confess, we can go as deep or shallow into this confession as you'd like to go. But I confess you and I had a conversation, I don't know, a few weeks ago that actually led to you being on the show here. We talked at length. I was really um, inspired by what it is you're building now. And I thought we could have this conversation and it would be productive that around this, most people We're right now, the way I'm grokking our conversations, we're trying to talk most people out of the trendy lens of raising venture capital as a cool thing to do because it sends some ego signal out to the world about how successful you are, your business could be. When in reality, 90% of businesses should not be venture back. You were very clear on that. And I, I value that POV. We've also talked about one thing privately, rather one thing that I'd like to make public now, if you're game, which is that if you do choose the venture capital route, that there are all kinds of um, non-obvious things about that universe. For example, people think that when you take investors that they want to make an awesome company. And it, of course, hinges on your definition of awesome. But if, if your company, for example, in five years is doing you know, $25 million and growing at you know, 40% year over year, I've had people look failure. at I've had people say to my face that that chase is just not interesting. And so if those kinds of numbers again doing 25 million a year and growing 40% year over year to you sounds fucking bananas off the charts cool and successful just know that that is not the scale that a venture capitalist is thinking and and I do not think that venture capitalism is a failure because of that. I think it's a success, but it is a success in a way that 99% of people do not understand and that they are only interested in building totally extraordinary companies. And if you are a good company, you will actually get in their way of building radically transformative companies. So you ought to be aware of that. I was hoping to get your response. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think it's, it's really a lot of pressure in terms of how you think about your business. There are a lot of things you cannot do that would make you profitable uh, or that would make you money that you don't do because you're like, well, I could do that for uh, to get to $2 million of revenue, but it's not along the path to get to 20. And it's definitely not along the path to get to 500. And so we make decisions all the time at Maven. I mean, Maven... Look, between myself and Wes, we could run a, uh, Wes is one of my co-founders, we could build courses that make 10 to $20 million a year. We know how to do that if we just built the courses ourselves. But we know that if we do that, we can only make 10 to $20 million a year. And that's unfortunately for us, not going to be a good enough option for our venture capitalists. So we can't do that. And so we have to figure out how to scale way beyond that. And that is a whole new set of challenges that so far we haven't, you know, 
we haven't yet cracked all the codes for. Yeah. Whereas we have right in front of us an opportunity that could make us a good amount of money. Now, the thing is, I've been fortunate enough that I've already made a good amount of money. And so I'm now playing for the next win, right? And I'm willing to take that risk, but I could spend the next three more years on Maven and just end up going home. Yeah, and with a zero, yeah. With a zero, and that happened to me with Sprig, right? I I, I mean, technically, I spent, I've spent 15 years since I started Udemy, three and a half of which were at Udemy. And all of all the money I've made in my life, 100% of the money I currently own, okay, that I did not spend in living expenses, et cetera, is from Udemy. So I made all of it in three and a half years. And the other 11 and a half years was a complete waste so far, zero. In fact, I lost money every one of those years. Um, if you look at the net uh, and basically just spent my Udemy earnings during that last 11 and a half years, that is crazy. That is such a crazy thing that you have to understand. And I have to be willing to do that for another three years. Um, and also, by the way, being an entrepreneur is extremely expensive because you spend all your time on your business. So you can't do any home stuff. Like we just remodeled our house and it was three times more expensive than it would have been if we had the time to be in involved in the remodel because we had to hire designers. We had to hire an architect. We didn't have time to do any of that shit ourselves. We had to hire people we could trust. And so it's an incredibly expensive life choice for parenting. I can't even imagine being an entrepreneur and being a parent. You have to factor that in. Um, and I, I personally am willing to factor that in. And I'm lucky that I started my first company when I was 21 and nothing to lose and just sort of like was, you know, right place, right time worked out, but I wouldn't encourage everyone else to do it. And there are lots of people I know who started companies at the same time who are bootstrapped and those people are better off today than I am for sure. Um, even though I built a billion dollar company and I had the success, what if I didn't? Um, and so I would say that there's very clear, in my opinion, advice that, you know, most of the time you want to start a bootstrap company and every once in a while, if it's the right idea, right place, it's venture backed and that's fine. But I wish we could change that narrative and still hold the excitement for venture backed companies that I have, because I still think there's such beauty in building the next Facebook or Google, or in our case, trying to build the next Udemy or, or Coursera or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I share that uh, that enthusiasm, and I think my goal in you know our conversation today is to have you share specifically your experiences, having done this a few times and had great outcome, uh, not great outcome with Sprig, which you can talk about in a second. And then again, you're building another sort of it's like you know three different outcomes so far and three different swings or three different at bats and to me that's fascinating because that's really as entrepreneurs that's what we're doing and specifically in the venture universe trying to help people understand that and just i'm going to trot out a very this is hyper basic and so people who actually understand all the subtlety bear with me and for for this is for people who don't the way that a venture capitalist would look at you know they have uh, they have been given from other investors uh, in their company. They have let's say a hundred million dollars, and they have to invest that over twenty companies. And so they give everybody. Again, this is very crude, but they give everybody. They've got twenty companies. They've got hundred million dollars. They give everybody five million dollars. 
Well, one of those companies, sorry, 18 of those companies go to zero. They absolutely burn out. They are not successful. One of those companies, say company 19, gives them a five to 20, five to 10, five to 20 X return. And now there's another company that gives them a billion dollar return on that 5 million. They just make all kinds of money. So if you are companies one through 18, prepare to be frustrated because they're going to, you're going to push your business when it doesn't meet their standards, you're going to have to shut it down or go home. When you're in that 19th business, you're going to be in no man or no woman's land. And when you're the unicorn, you are going to be, have, have a total home run. So here we are. That is what venture capitalism is. And in listening to you today, Goggin, you have done the unicorn. You've made the big bucks for your investors. You have you know, driven uh, one into the ground on the back of trying to build something extraordinary with Sprig that didn't work. You're building something new with Maven. I'm very, very excited for you with Maven. I'm hoping that you can help us sort of wrap up today by understanding if we want to follow you on your journey with Maven, where do we go? How do we pay attention to what it is you're learning or you're building? Because uh, the people on this listening on the show here, they want to know, they want to support. Thanks, Chase. It's been an awesome conversation. I I will say I didn't expect us to go down down all the topic areas we did, but I I really enjoyed it. And I hope people listening did too. The uh, best place to find me is on LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, Gagan Viani, um, or Maven, maven.com, M-A-V-E-N.com. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, we're, we're going to do our best to build the university of the future. We're going to try to help people out there learn, learn skills that they need to in their jobs, in their careers, learn management, learn sales, et cetera, but in a way that we think is a lot more effective than the old school version of education. So I hope you'll come and check it out and find a course that might be uh, va valuable for you um, and make a big difference on your, on your journey. Uh, thank I will, you so much, Chase. Yeah, happy to, to have you on the show. And I will wrap up by saying you indicated that I might be a skeptic. I'm not a skeptic. I'm very, very uh, passionate about what you're building. I think to be able to learn with others is an incredibly uh, helpful, adaptive, sort of uh, creative way of looking at learning. And I do think that's a huge piece of the future, whether you're doing that in a cohort where everyone's online or you're doing some some bit of in-person or some bit of online, some bit of synchronous and asynchronous. I think that the, the combination, like all things, it's really gray. And so I'm very excited about what you're building. Not a skeptic here, just a big fan and congrats on all the success. And I'm, I'm pulling for you with Maven and uh, I'll encourage our audience to go check it out. So thank you very much, man. I appreciate you and your time uh, for sharing your insights around what it's like to be uh, a, a lifelong entrepreneur. More power to you, my man. Thanks, Chase. All right, that about wraps it up for today's show. Here's Truly and Goggin chatting about what it's like to be a venture-backed entrepreneur. Um, I hope that this episode has been valuable to you. And until next time, from Goggin and yours truly here in Seattle, uh, we bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. 
I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show, and the questions that you ask our guests, either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together.